You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. Well, good morning, everybody. It it is a privilege to be able to stand and preach God's Word. Um, Is the microphone good? Administrative stuff. I don't do this very often or ever, so... uh, the other thing I'm noticing here is I'm glad I bought my cheaters because every time I practiced it, I printed it in bold print so that I could read it. But tables are about this high and this is this high. So when you're near or farsighted, it's too close. So I'll probably be doing this an awful lot. So um, anyway, uh, today, as Ben mentioned, we're, we're progressing through 2 Timothy and we've arrived at chapter 3. Uh, and the way I... Uh, received this passage was the first one I was assigned the date didn't suit and so Ben said well I'll just preach that and you can slide into here and I said well that would be great and and then I read it (laughs) and I was like I don't think that's a very good idea but but as providence would have it uh, this date and passage worked out wonderfully Uh, my son and his girlfriend Reagan happened to be in town from Houston this weekend uh, because he has a friend from high school who's getting married. Uh, and so uh, it's an extra added joy not to be able to just bring God's word to you, but uh, to have them here uh, as that happens. So make sure you say hi to them afterwards, please. Um, so I, I, anyway, as we get ready to look at this passage, I want you to think of a time that you've been, like I was with this passage, pleasantly surprised by something that you were initially dreading. Maybe it was an invitation to somebody's house for a meal or maybe for a party. Maybe if you're younger and still in school, it was a school assignment or some task at work that when you first started it, it seemed like drudgery. But as you were digging into it, it started becoming more and more satisfying. I I remember a time last fall, Crystal and I got away for a week. We went down to Shenandoah and after enjoying a full day of hiking in the mountains with the fall foliage, she wanted to take a, d- a day to just kind of rest and, and take a drive through the mountains. And so she found a, a fun apple orchard that was a couple hours drive away. Now, you got to realize, I, I'm an airline pilot. I hate driving. It's a complete waste of time. It is merely an inefficient and slow means to get to a destination. So for me, the cost of driving for two hours to arrive at a fun apple orchard when I live 20 minutes away from Cherry Crest or Cherry Hill was not appealing. But since I had nothing better to suggest, I relented and off we went. And as time went on, I started to appreciate the beauty around every curve and the drive wasn't so much of a dreaded task anymore. As we arrived at the apple orchard, I was right. It was not worth driving two hours for. (laughs) But I was saved because they were closing. And I learned that around the corner that there was a wonderful small town that had a couple of nice restaurants, a wonderful ice cream shop, and we found barbecue, apple cider, and a caramel apple pie that still makes my mouth water. I was unexpectedly surprised by the beauty and the worth of our drive 
and especially our unplanned destination. And that's how I found this passage of 2 Timothy. At first, it seemed like a bleak section of Scripture. But when you look at it again, it's full of both warnings and wonderful gospel truths. Sometimes we need to stare down the bad to see the good. Let's keep that in mind as we read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Let's pray briefly. Lord, uh, would you take your word and drive it deep into our hearts so that it would go into our mouths and our hands and our feet and make a difference in the way we live our lives? Because you are glorious and we are needy. Thank you for the gift. In Jesus' name. As you can see, we've got a lot of mileage to cover in this passage. And I know it's only nine, nine verses, but there's a long list there in there. As we do, let's keep in mind the sermon series vision that as our church stays faithful and focused to fulfill the ministry to which he called us. Today, we will be helped if we can keep this big idea in mind. Love God by applying the truth of the gospel so self-love does not creep in and disqualify your faith and ministry. Love God by applying the truth of the gospel so self-love doesn't creep in and disqualify your faith and ministry. Today's text is a sobering account of people in the Ephesian church who didn't take the power of the gospel to heart. Instead, they mixed it with other popular views about life and religion, and the results were cancerous. Not only were they deceived, but their deception spread in the church and its vile fruit is chronicled in the list that we just read. If we do three things to apply the big idea to our hearts, we will avoid allowing the same thing to happen in our own lives, ministries, and church. First, we need to understand our place in history to, avoid, uh, to persevere in difficulty. Second, avoid falling in with the lovers of self. And third, take confidence in the truth of God's powerful gospel. So, for, for the first thing that we're to do, understand our place in history to persevere in difficulty. Let's start our drive through the passage right there. Remember, it starts in an unpleasant place, but with just a single word. But... 
This section opens with this single word but, and it obviously ties the section to the previous one about correcting opponents with gentleness so that God perhaps may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It's an important encouragement to Timothy because things are about to get rough. Paul is starting out this bumpy road by saying that sometimes, even though you are kind, able to teach, endure, patiently correct, like he exhorted in verse 2.22, there will be times that it doesn't always work. And he's going to reveal the reason why this doesn't always work in just a few verses. But it's worth noting that we need to be faithful and not lose heart when our faithful efforts are ineffective. Even though sometimes you are faithful, difficult times will come. So throughout the book and this passage, Timothy is instructed to be faithful and to remember that it is God's work through him, not simply his efforts that bring about real change for the church. And that it is only in 2.25, God that grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. With this connection, Paul then mentions that, quote, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. As we understand our point in history to persevere in difficulty, this phrase, the last days, is very noteworthy. It is not just a prophecy of things to come. It is a statement about where we are in the present. Notice that there will come is in the future tense, but verse 5 is the command to avoid is in the present tense. Paul's point is that Timothy, like us, was as we are living in the last days. Numerous New Testament passages agree that we are in the last days. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. Hebrews 1.2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was made manifest in the last times for your sake. So, we are living in the last days. It is the time period between when Christ appeared and when he will return to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And Paul doesn't just throw this in here for no reason. He is getting ready to say some very discouraging things about people who are in Timothy's church. And Timothy needs to be strengthened with the strength that fuels Paul's incredible endurance. This knowledge makes a difference. Just this week, one of my friends, Bob, just called me from Boise, Idaho, lying flat on his back in a hotel, in a hospital bed, not a hotel bed, a hospital bed with all sorts of complications from a diagnosis, which is a congenital heart uh, disease. It's the same thing that causes a lot of these elite athletes to just collapse of cardiac arrest on the court. Bob now knows that he is possibly living in his last day every day he wakes up and it makes a difference to the way he approaches his life. And Paul is saying the same thing. We just finished chapter 2 about suffering for the gospel as a farmer, athlete, and soldier. We're getting ready in verse 12 of this chapter to to be told that faithfulness will equate to suffering. What Paul is fueled by It fuels his sold-out abandonment 
in and from the world for the advancement of the gospel, even as he awaits his execution for the gospel, is the surefire conviction that God is on his throne and that he is moving things in history towards his desired end and that Christ will return to usher in a new age where every wrong in this wicked world will be righted and that we are on the winning side. Even when it doesn't seem like it, church. Even when it doesn't seem like it. The call of chapter 3 to continue in the gospel is urgent for Paul because he sees evil increasing both in and outside of the church. And he is calling Timothy to apply the truth of the gospel to avoid falling in with these lovers of self. This is the second way that we can love God by applying the truth of the gospel. Avoid falling in with the lovers of self. Now, you can look at your Bible for verses 2 through 5 where you can look at the next slide which has a little bit of commentary on each one of them. I don't want to take a deep dive into 21 vices, so I'm just going to give one phrase that helps clarify what they are. For people will be lovers of self, narcissistic, lovers of money, finding their greatest joy in materialistic things, proud, loving to draw attention to their accomplishments, arrogant with an inflated view of self, abusive, harming another to gain or maintain power, not rightly exercising their authority as servant leaders, disobedient to parents, having a rebellious spirit, ungrateful, assuming that they have the right to the things that they get and that they deserve even more or better, unholy, indifferent to godly character and right image-bearing, heartless, unable to sympathize or empathize with others, unappeasable, unwilling to forgive, slanderous, distorting what others say or do for their own self-promotion, without self-control, a slave to their own appetites, brutal, dead to all tenderness, not loving good, unable to see and savor moral beauty, treacherous, breaking promises for their own advantage, traitors like Judas, the same word, reckless, indifferent to the possible cost of their desires, swollen with conceit, blind to the ugliness of self-preoccupation, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Finding more satisfaction in temporary physical pleasures than in divine admiration. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Using religion for personal gain without treasuring Christ above all. If you look at that long list, you might have missed what you could pick out if you just looked at your text. And that is that verse 2, lovers of self, is juxtaposed or bookended against verse 4, lovers of God. The lovers of self are the reason that difficult times will come. People's love for self is a root that is the difficult times. And the antidote is to be lovers of God. 
Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 12, he teaches us that the overflow of the heart is what the mouth speaks from. He is saying that our behaviors reveal the desires of our hearts. When you love God, you will be inclined to love your neighbor. When you love self, you will look and act like the previous list. John Piper notes, the aim of a list like this is not to grovel in evil or gloat over others or savor indictments. The aim is to understand the untrue and the varieties of evil in order to spot those things in ourselves and others with a view to overcoming them and avoiding them by turning to God through the power of the Gospel. The only way you will become a lover of God. The sheer fact that Paul gives such a long list shows that he had seen a lot of evil in his days. And he had thought about how that evil ravages the human soul. You will see a lot too. You will see more and more with every day. Think deeply about what you see. Grieve, pray, care. And cherish the Gospel that saves you. And speak it to the perishing. And pursue holiness. Which pleases the Lord. We need each other to walk this out. We were just told the very end of chapter 2 that they're captured by the devil to do his will. How does a lion hunt? Peter tells us that he is a lion who seeks prey to devour. How does he hunt? He isolates the weak. Walk this out together. And always in the context of the Gospel. The Gospel has to be forefront because the point of the passage is that this sin from self-love is and always has been in the church. That's the overriding message. It's everywhere. This is why Paul continues in verse 5 that having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Wait a second. How can after a list of vices like this be listed, he say that these people who look like that have the appearance of godliness? It does not compute at first, does it? What is that power that they deny? Well, by, by asking what did the original writer mean and how would the original readers have interpreted what he meant, we can figure this out. Only then do we move to the next step and ask how that original message applies to us today. This is the way of the disciple, studying to arrive at a knowledge of the truth that transforms and fuels our next step with Jesus. This is what these lovers of self did not do with the gospel message that Timothy had faithfully proclaimed to them. Instead, they attempted to assimilate groke, uh, groke, Greek, broke Greek, Roman and Jewish beliefs 
and the combination birthed a philosophy that created a false split between the material and the spiritual realms. The big word you'll hear sometimes is Gnosticism, and I think sometimes antinomianism. That's not important. What's important is that they believed that the physical realm was completely separate from the spiritual realm. And therefore, they concluded that a person could either do whatever they wanted with their bodies and live like in, in uh, licentiousness and pleasure, because after all, the material body does not affect the spiritual realm. Or they concluded that because the material realm is bad and the spiritual realm is good, you must punish the body and flog the material in order to become more spiritual. See Colossians chapter 2 if you want to read more about it in a different church. When fully worked out, they actually have to deny the deity of Christ because God, who is spirit, surely wouldn't condescend to become material, which is bad. So these false teachers' appearance of godliness is rooted in their false teaching about how the gospel applies to real life. They sound so thoughtful, but they leave people burdened with sin. Look at verse 6. And on an endless quest to justify themselves to others and to God. Their self-exaltation is a prison that traps them in an endless cycle seeking affirmation that can only come through the love of God. Who will fill them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control instead of the above list of 21 vices. Now, you, you know, I need to preach this to myself so much. <laughs> Just Thursday, Crystal was running late for work. So, being the great guy that I am, I said, I'll, I'll make your lunch and bring it down to your work at lunchtime. I say that tongue-in-cheek, great guy, because you'll see how I really am. I planned to turn it off, or to drop it off to go home and then work on the rest of this sermon. Well, when I arrived there, Thursday was hot, remember that? When I arrived there, she was running late. So I waited at the door. I began to feel like my dog waiting at the door. And I tell him to go, go. Uh, I was waiting in the heat, and as I waited in the heat and time went on, I began to heat up. And as I stared at that locked door and texted her, uh, I'm here. I'll be there in a minute. And then went 10 more minutes. And I began to heat up. And now I was steaming. <laughs> and then when 25 minutes had gone by and she came down from her appointment and her client walked out, I decided to let her know that I was steaming. How dare she make me wait? After all, I was taking my time to serve her, and she would make me wait. Did she not know that I needed to go work on my sermon? <laughs> and then came the power of the gospel. It allowed me to see my sin. I mean, you laugh because it's ridiculous, right? But I could have dug in. 
She was inconsiderate. I'm standing in the heat. I'm doing her the favor. Can't she not get excuse herself? But the power of the gospel came, and it didn't let me stay stuck in trying to hide in my shame and hypocrisy and try to convince myself that my anger was okay. Instead, the gospel allowed me to admit that I really was wrong and sinful, in fact. And because it was sinful, I needed forgiveness. No shame, no condemnation. I have peace with God, so I don't have to hide. I can own my failures because they are paid for. But it's better than that. The power of the Gospel doesn't just release us from guilt. It brings hope that as we confess our sins, He is faithful to bring change, to restore our heart to be more like our Savior. We don't have to be stuck in our sin. The power of the Gospel is both the freedom from shame and guilt and the hope that I am not stuck but can expect Him to change me as I take the next step to flee and pursue like Alden preached us last week. And the next step is this. It looks like asking the Lord, what is the root of my self-loving anger that drove me to sin when I intended to serve? And then as I ask the Lord to reveal that, I can confess that to Him and He begins changing my heart to look more like Him so that my actions line up with my new character that He works in me. But it only happens as I both flee and pursue. That is the next step that brings change. That is what the Ephesian creepers, as we're going to start calling them, did not do. And so, Paul instructs Timothy to avoid those in the church who sadly, after hearing the gospel, did not, or did they do, after hearing the gospel, they distort it with wisdom of the age. And in doing so, they deny its transforming power into powerless sanction of licentiousness and trap themselves in a prison of self love. So, what does avoid mean? Well, Paul gives us a parallel text in Romans chapter 16. It says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ with their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We are told to avoid those in the church who are in the church but are not growing in their love for God who do not live in the freedom of repentance and when, when they are corrected gently with God's word, but instead they stay in their self-love and proclaim that it is good. They are to be avoided because as the next verses reveal, they deviously move into, advance their false doctrine in the church, and they deceive the naive. We avoid them because as preached two weeks ago, their babble will lead to more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. We are to avoid them because we don't want them to stay in their self-love and think that it will save themselves. Because only the truth can save. This brings us to the third way that we can apply our big idea to love God by applying the truth of the gospel so that self-love doesn't creep in and disqualify your faith 
and ministry. And that is to take confidence in your knowledge of the truth and know that those who oppose the truth, that those who oppose God's saving power will fail. Let's read uh, verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with the sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. We'll deal with the second two verses in a minute. The lovers of self who deny the power of the gospel will seek out those who are weak in their doctrine to spread false teachings to them. Their methods are described as creeping. It is insidious. In Ephesus, their most vulnerable appears to be, quote, weak women who were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. But the point is not here that the women were weak, but they were weak in their sound doctrine. And that led them to failures to be vulnerable, uh, to uh, be burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. It's like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, carrying the burden of sin and guilt on his back. That's where they were. And it is a warning to all of what happens when we do not grow in our knowledge and application of sound doctrine. Now, when I say sound doctrine, don't let that intimidate you. Remember, it's as simple as the gospel is as simple for a little child to understand. And it's as complex as it is to study it for all of your life and not understand even the tip of the iceberg. So don't be intimidated by that. We sang sound doctrine today when we sang a, rematch, a remix of the Apostles' Creed. That's all you need to know right there for sound doctrine. The disciple learns so that he can move it from his head, his or her head, to heart, to mouth, to hands, and apply it. Not so that they can be feeling profound while remaining a lover of self, like these teachers. The self-indulgence which promised them freedom has brought the guilt, the burden of shame and guilt and the above vices of self-love. And their creepy teachers are disqualified from the community of faith. In chapter 4, Paul says that these people seek out teachers who tell them whatever they want to hear. And they find plenty of comfort in the lies that they actively pursue. And... So it is in the last days, both then and now. People believing lies from cultural forces that distort the gospel and deny its power creeping into the church. Think with me for a moment. Can you name one shared moral value of our culture? You might say freedom? But can you give me a definition of freedom that everybody would agree on? The only value that I can think of is demonstrated by a recent time when I was riding to my next flight in the back of an airplane with my uniform on. And as we approached the runway for takeoff, the woman next to me who was feverishly working on her laptop computer took out her cell phone and began making a phone call. And Ten rows around me looked because she was speaking loudly. And they're not looking at her, they're looking at me because I have my uniform on. 
They're saying, what are you going to do? And I go, yeah, you're right. I got no choice. So, like, I'm thinking to myself, could you not have just gone like this and sent a text? Then I can look the other way. <laughs> but no, she speaks. And, and so I say, ma'am, you're going to have to hang up your phone. We're getting ready to take off. And she looked at me and she says, who are you to tell me what to do? You see, there's no higher authority than me. I always, she didn't say this, right? She says, okay, right? She, what she did say is, you, who are you to tell me what to do? And what I heard and what she was really saying is, there's no higher authority than me for me. You do you, I'll do me. I always get to decide what's right for me. And no external rules or constraints apply to me. Thank you very much. She said it and her folly became known. <laughs> because I was forced to instruct her that, in fact, I was a uniformed crew member who, under the power of federal law, had the responsibility to enforce safety regulations. And if she wanted to continue her phone call, I would be happy to have the captain taxi the airplane back to the gate where she can get off and continue it. My point's not about cell phones, or even this lady, or even the culture. It's that we need to be aware of the air that we breathe so that it doesn't creep into our own hearts. Because remember, it spreads like gangrene. Our culture tells us every single day that we have a duty to define for ourselves who we are. And the burden is immense. We are constantly told that the good life comes when we decide for ourselves without any external constraints or limitations what feels authentic to us. We are then to leverage that on all social media platforms, sports, with all of our creativity, and any platform available to the rest of the world. And to be denied that platform is to be viewed as an abuse that denies me my very personhood. It is a new spin on being lovers of self instead of lovers of God. And it is insidious and deadly because our identity is as a creature, not a creator. We are not all-knowing and all-powerful. And to pretend that we are is to imprison ourselves in a futile quest that makes us treacherous, reckless, unappeasable, and all of the rest of the self-loving vices because we are doing everything we can to play God. And the more and more we do, the more desperate and angry we grow as we fail to achieve the impossible. The truth is that we are image bearers whose identity is given to us 
by our Creator. A Creator who is good and just. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. A Creator whose character we begin to mirror only as we rest in the identity that He gives us. Instead of taking on the burden of playing God and trying to decide everything for ourselves. You see, our culture is right. We do have dignity and worth. But our worth is given to us, not created by us. The power of the Gospel gives us our new identity as lovers of God. Paul changed the world forever. Forever. By accepting his new identity as servant of Christ. Look at how he starts all of his letters in his introduction. He's not Paul. Whatever. He's Paul, slave of Christ. And it changed the world. This is what the knowledge of the truth produces in us. Which brings me to what might be, might be my favorite part of this passage. And it comes straight from the heart of Paul. We're, we're nearing the end of the journey and the, the destination is well worth the drive. And it's just like my barbecue joint in this obscure corner of the Shenandoah Mountains that I guarantee you I could never find again. Paul picks up these two obscure names that are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, Janus and Jambres, and he offers them up to us as a rich feast. So let's consider why Paul mentions them to Timothy. Verse 8 and 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses... So, these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Remember who Paul is. He is the one who is surpassing all of his peers in zeal as a Pharisee. He had the Old Testament and probably much, much more completely memorized in chapter 2, he gave us a wonderful hearkening back to the Old Testament with Korah's rebellion to make his point to New Testament Timothy. And now he hearkens back to the Exodus and Moses to make his point. And the point is a gospel application. You see, the gospel started in Genesis and it goes all the way through to Revelation. But what's interesting here is that the actual names, Janus and Jambres, aren't included in Moses' account of the Exodus. But they were in Jewish tradition, which Paul had memorized, and now they're included in the canon because Paul did, in fact, write them into Scripture. So we know that Janus and Jambres were the magicians in the Pharaoh's Egyptian court who opposed Moses. How did they oppose Moses? Well, there's going to be a couple of layers here. The first way, and the most obvious way that he, they oppose Moses is as Moses goes into Pharaoh's throne room and throws down his staff and it turns into a snake to validate his message. Janus and Jambres throw down their staffs and pop them into snakes also because they're magicians and they can do a simple magic trick. 
It's interesting that Moses, or Moses' staff ate their snakes. But nonetheless, they opposed him by trying to duplicate. They continue to oppose when Moses turns the Nile River into blood. They make some water turn into blood. When he sends, when God, through Moses, sends frogs to, infu- to overwhelm the kingdom, they produce frogs out of thin air. But they can only hang through the first two plagues. When Moses sends gnats as an infestation, they can't do that. And they declare, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh stops listening by then, right? He's hardening his heart, and God is hardening his heart as he does so. Until he destroys his own kingdom, bringing it under God's judgment. Now here's where the example to our text becomes both so interesting and amazing. It's amazing. So the tradition holds that not only did these two men, Janus and Jambres, oppose Moses in the court, when they saw that this is from the finger of God, they actually figured, if you can't beat him, join him. Only servants of Pharaoh are mentioned. No more magicians in the rest of the Exodus account. Janus and Jambres assimilated themselves in with the Israelite people. And they crossed the Red Sea. This is the Jewish tradition that Paul is bringing in the Scripture. Crossed the Red Sea with them. And when Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Janus and Jambres are down in the camp of the Israelites. And what do they do? Where, where's Moses? Where's the one who's bringing God's message? He's not here. Will he ever come back? I got something else for you. Why don't we make a golden calf? This is your God. Let's worship the God who's brought you out of Egypt. It's the golden calf. Janus and Jambres were in fact according to Jewish tradition, the ones who incited the golden calf rebellion. Their folly was made known to all when Moses came back down. What happens to God's enemies? They're destroyed. What's the parallel to this text? I'm going off my notes here. What's the parallel to this text? Janus and Jambres opposed the gospel from the beginning. They opposed God's message. Let my people go from slavery and oppression. Pharaoh. They opposed it until they saw that they couldn't. Then they assimilated. Until there came another chance to oppose. Because you see, they heard the message. But they didn't apply it to their hearts. And when the advantage came to put forward another God. Another foolish philosophy. Another hollow and deceptive thought. They jumped right on it. They recognized that there's a power out there, but they failed to see God behind it. They, um, let me get back to my notes here. Um, Janus and Jamus recognized that there was a power there, but they failed to see that God was behind it. 
So even though they joined, when Moses went away, they offered up another God, and they still are opposing the truth, just like Egypt, able to testify that this is the hand of God, but not truly following Him. Paul serves them up as the perfect parallel to the Ephesian false teachers and their weak followers. Paul is saying his message of the Gospel is the same as Moses' message. Let my people go. The exodus with all of its imagery is both an actual event in history and a foreshadowing of God's saving power for His people and His judgment on His enemies. Remember the Passover in the exodus with this explicit pointing to the foreshadowing of the Gospel? The blood of the Lamb wiped over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over? This saving power was opposed by evil and self-seeking men like Janus and Jambres who always opposed that saving work by looking like they have another way to offer that is just as good or better. Whether it's magic tricks or clever philosophy, their folly will be known to all. Janus and Jambres were destroyed after raising up the false and powerless golden calf as have all the opponents of the Gospel throughout all of history. From the days of Moses to the time of Timothy to today, no matter the opposition, God's plan will not fail. And it is the only plan that brings us true freedom. So, we shouldn't be surprised that it is still opposed today in the last days. False doctrine does not last because it does not save. There is one truth, and He is Jesus, risen from the dead, the author and perfecter of our faith. There is power in the Gospel. You can know the truth, and it will both save and change you. Do the work of the disciple and apply it to your heart so that you will stay faithful and focused. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.